I trust that we all got a hold of that concept of open versus broken that is very revealing, very helpful to me personally. A number of people that I know went through some of Brother Visser's teaching just a few weeks ago and were tremendously helped by it. And I trust that you're getting the notes and paying attention to the principles that he's presenting to you. It's going to help you in years to come. I want to address this afternoon the tragedy of idolatry. And quite frankly, it's a difficult subject for me. Not because I can't preach on it, but because I have preached on it and it seems like we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, but that's not that big a deal. Or we can't quite admit that is, that is where we are. Just a little over 400 years ago, some who believed the Church of England was beyond restoration or reformation, purposed to come to America in search of religious freedom. Peter T. Forsyth states the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. I'm not saying that the disposition of those that sought freedom in America was wrong. I believe it was right. But we've got to be very careful about this concept of freedom. Because it could confuse us if we lose it. But freedom is not our number one objective. Finding our master is. Since that search for freedom by the pilgrims in 1620, America has become fat with prosperity. And we've become quite thin with Christian principles. I relate to our high school students on occasion. The atmosphere of the culture that I grew up in, and I shared that with them just last Thursday, after the things that happened in America. Because America today is coming from such a different mindset than what it did when I was a teenager, being educated in a public school, where every day, our day was started with prayer and scripture reading. Actually, scripture reading and prayer. Different pastors would come into the principal's office. The PA system was turned on. And they would share a scripture and they would lead it in prayer. The standards of the public school I attended, just uh, about an hour and 40 minutes north of here, were stricter than most Christian school standards today. And the discipline was pretty tough. But what we miss or seem to fail to understand, and I think what some of you probably don't realize because you're just too young to understand it, is that there was a time when Americans thought biblically. 
Even if they didn't know they were thinking biblically, they thought biblically. The Bible was considered absolute truth. Relativism wasn't the God of the day. Whereby your truth could be your truth and my truth could be my truth and they could be totally contrary to each other and they could totally be both right. Of course, that's not possible. God's truth is truth and anything that contradicts it is a lie. And so we must know our God, we must seek our God, we must understand our master My church, our deacons asked me to take a break in June of this past year, and I took almost a month off, sort of. And one of the things I did was read through the book of Jeremiah. I don't know how many times, but I went back and read it, and I highlighted verses, and I wrote down phrases from verses that jumped out at me and went back and reread those verses specifically and then preached a bunch of messages from Jeremiah, not a verse-by-verse verse study by any means, but I saw so many principles that connected to what was going on in America. And this message is a result of that. We have found ourselves so rich in prosperity and so weak in our understanding of truth that we fail to see and understand the danger that we're in. Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 are certainly to be taken heed to charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth, giveth us richly all things to enjoy." The problem with our prosperity is that like Israel, in the midst of our affluence, we allow many things to take the place of our devotion to God. It's just, it just is the nature of what happens. In his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in the misconception. Our integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. And what it reveals is that we have gods in our life that we're really not willing to deal with things that we're not willing to set aside, things that we're not willing to vacate. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul stated that the significant change in the Thessalonians was that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living God. You see, the very test of our idolatry is what we serve. And the fact is we don't serve God near as much as we serve other things. And I wonder if all preachers have a hard time helping their congregations see that gods are really a problem in their lives. So what is idolatry? How would we describe it? Idolatry is used in the New Testament as a worship of false gods, including the formal sacrificial feats 
held in honor of those false gods. And in the plural, idolatries would include the vices that spring up from and are connected to the worship of idols. Mammon, greed, avarice is a part of that idolatry. James Packer, in his work, Your Father Loves You, asks this question. What other gods could we have besides the Lord? Plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual immorality. These are the same gods we serve today. Immorality, overeating, or gluttony, and greed. These make up an unholy trinity representing one God, self. And then there is another enslaving tree of pleasure, possessions, and position, which are described in 1 John 2.16 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our gods can be described another way, football, the firm, and family. In other words, my entertainment in my work, in my family. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his God and there are a legion of claimants seeking to run our lives. In the matter of our life's basic loyalty, who or what will we serve? The temptation is a many-headed monster. So again, I say, reading these words, I wonder how many pastors have struggled to find words to convince people in their congregation that false gods are a serious problem. But you see, when our children grow up loving the things of the world more than they love God, something's wrong. We're probably not willing to call it idolatry. But those things we love take priority over the one who loves us, even though we do not bow down to images fashioned of wood, stone, and metal. It's real a reality that that hard-to-admit gods of this world made with men's hands still compete for our attention and draw us away from the gods we gather to worship. Now, for the next few minutes, if you want to pray for me and with me as I talk through this, I'm going to get into some things that probably shouldn't be done on an afternoon after you just got eaten a bunch of ice cream and barbecue and who knows what else. And you'd rather sleep than listen to me, Right? No, of course not. But it's easy to get distracted and it's easy for your eyes to get heavy. But as I was reading through Jeremiah, then God also directed me to some of the books of the Kings and the Chronicles. And I was struck by the conversation Solomon had with God after building the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple in 2 Chronicles 5.14, indicating God's pleased with what Solomon has done. In chapter 6, Solomon begins talking to God. In verse 10, Solomon states, The Lord, therefore, hath performed his word that he's spoken. For I have risen up in the the room of David my father, and am set on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And in it have I put the ark wherein the covenant of the Lord that, that he made with the children of Israel. 
If we skip ahead to a few verses, we can look at verse 14. It says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven or in earth, which keepest covenant and showest mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with all their hearts. Thou which hast kept Thou which hast kept with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him, and speakest with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. And what Solomon is saying is that God promised David, you're a man of war, so I'm going to have your son build the temple. David prepared for it, but Solomon built it. And Solomon built it, and recognizing it was a place that people could come and worship God. And it was an honor in regard to David's desire to have God worshipped in a place where people could come and meet with God. Not that God could be contained in a building, but that the people could come and that would represent the place where they met with God, they worshipped God, they honored God, they focused on God. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that which thou hast promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight, to sit upon the throne of Israel, yet so that thy children take heed to their way to walk in my law as thou hast walked before me. God saying to David, there will not fail a man to sit on the throne that's of your posterity as long as they learn to keep my law and walk before me. Now then, O Lord, Solomon says, God of Israel, let thy word be verified which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. Solomon saying, my heart's desires, what David's desire was, is that we would honor you, that we would worship you, that we would keep you first. And you would honor us and keep your word and your promise that you made in the Davidic covenant. He's basically saying, you made David a promise and I've now built the temple and have placed the ark in the holy place, the place to meet with you and worship is completed. So now let thy word, the promise you made to David, be verified to me and through me. But God responds to Solomon in chapter 7. The very first issue that God makes with Solomon in responding to his prayer and saying, let everything that David asked and everything that you promised David take place, let it happen. Yet the very first issue that God addresses, he says, Then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel, but if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots and out of, out of my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name will I, cast out, will I cast out of my sight and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. This house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto his house? And it shall be answered, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods. They laid hold on other gods. They laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath he brought this evil upon them. Jeremiah writes in his book prophecies against Israel, which had already been judged, and his prophecy against Judah, which was going to be judged because she was following her treacherous sister Israel. 
And then he concludes his book by writing prophecies against the Gentile nations. And God basically says, I don't have the verse in front of me, if you don't think I will judge the Gentile nations, you better wake up. I took Jerusalem, which my heart was set upon. And I took my people whom I loved, and I cast them out of the land, and I judged them, and I made them a byword and a proverb. And I took the temple where my people met with me, and I allowed it to be destroyed because they had other gods before me. And we in America have the audacity to think that God would not judge us because of our idolatry. And the sad reality is we struggle to admit that we even have the problem. We hear the sermons preached. We understand the concept of anything that's before God. But when it comes right down to it, the things that are nearest and dearest to us will still not be removed from our lives. Because we really don't think God's fed up with our idolatry. I want us to pray and then we're going to look at some things that God says in reference to this. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the tragic things that took place in Israel and then Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the place of worship were a direct result of your people not being willing to acknowledge that they had become idolatrous. In grace, you warned them, sending multitudes of prophets. And yet they chose to listen to those that lied instead of those like Jeremiah, which told them the truth. Refused to acknowledge their sin. Refused to turn from their ways. And ultimately experienced your wrath, your judgment. Lord, help us to see regardless of what anybody else does in America, we have a responsibility to respond to you. Help us to hear you today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what happened? What happened? Right after Solomon dedicated the temple, right after God said to Solomon, I will do what you've prayed, I'll do what I promised David, but don't you be going after other gods, Second Chronicles chapter 8. Solomon marries and brings into his kingdom false worship. And in a realization that he couldn't have this temple and this place to worship God and his wife who worshiped false gods in the same vicinity, he built her a place totally somewhere else to get her away from the temple of God. He knew that he was guilty of idolatry and honoring false gods. 
But we immediately see him introducing false gods into the nation and allowing for the building of groves and places of worship to those false gods right after God said, I'll bless and I'll honor and I'll keep my covenant if you don't have false gods. And it didn't end with just one marriage or two or three, but 300 wives and 700 concubines. The nation became riddled with idolatry and false worship and false gods. And so we read in 1 Kings 11, which is just all a part of this, but King Solomon loved many strange women. Idolatry is seizing. It's seizing upon things other than God and giving those things priority over God. The first of the Ten Commandments stated in Exodus 23 is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When Christ was asked by the lawyer, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Christ's response was clear, concise. He said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. With all thy mind, this is the first and great commandment. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, God warned Israel before entering the promised land. And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, to keep that, the commandments of the Lord and his statutes as I, which I command you this day for thy good. But somehow in their prosperity... Somehow, in that prosperity, God was replaced with the pursuit of other gods, and so it is with us. So Jeremiah chapter 2, what is the tragedy of idolatry? What is the tragedy of idolatry? We've tried to describe it briefly to you what idolatry is, but what's the tragedy? First of all, I would say our love for God is hindered. It no longer is pure. It's no longer unadulterated. It's mingled with love for other things. Christ warned in Matthew 6, 24, we can't serve God in possessions. Here's how he said it. No man can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other. Or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Can't do it. Yet we try to do it probably every day of our lives. 1 John 2.15, we're warned that we can't love God in the present world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Not just our love for God is weak or our love for God is not the best, it's non-existent. You love the world, the things that are in the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In Jeremiah 2, verses 25 through 27, I'm just going to read the last half of verse 25. The response is, there is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, 
to a chunk of wood. Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble they will say, Arise and save us. We have known for some time that we are in trouble in America spiritually. We've understood that we do not have the power of God that we ought to. Many are concerned about that and we preach and we seek God and we seek to bring people to a place where they realize that God must be a priority and that our priorities must be reordered. And yet somehow we struggle to really come to the end of ourselves and come to grips with the fact that much of what's going on in America is not the fault of the sinful, unsaved Americans, but the fault of the church of Jesus Christ. We struggle to have power with God. We struggle to be bothered with sin. We struggle to have a sensitivity to what's really right and what's really wrong. We struggle to respond to the wooing and the convicting and the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We struggle to accept the admonition that we receive. We struggle with the authorities that God places in our life. We struggle to surrender our lives to him completely. We struggle to live in obedience. We struggle to believe that little indiscretions are unacceptable. I do not exclude myself. I'm saying this is where we are. We have looked to the world and looked at the world for so long that we have forgotten that our standard is not the world and just because we're better than the world and just because we go to church and just because we pray and just because we memorize the Bible and just because we preach God's word and just because we tell people about Jesus Christ and just because we lead people to Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that we are right with God. And we struggle to accept that. We struggle to embrace it. We struggle to understand it. Today in the Word, Jude 14th, 1989, though we do not face a pantheon of false gods like the Israelites did, we face pressures from the pantheon of false values, materialism, love of leisure, sensuality, worship of self, security, and many others. The second commandment deals with idols. This may be something that most of us can't relate to unless we include life goals that revolve around something other than God himself. What is the object of our affection, our efforts, our attention? Where does the majority of our time go on? What do we spend the greatest amount of resources? It is not hard to determine that we are struggling with idolatry and false gods in our life. When we look at how quickly we sacrifice for one thing and how hesitant we are to sacrifice for the things of God. I've had people come to me and they don't mean anything by it, but it just shows where our thinking is. And this has happened more than once where somebody at their place of employment gets a generous, unexpected bonus. 
And the response is, wow, I got this money from work and I didn't expect it and we're going to be able to build a new house. Going to be able to buy a car. We're going to be able to take a vacation. We're going to head out here in a few weeks and enjoy a vacation like we've never had. I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong. I'm saying it just shows how we think. Why do we not hear something like, I wasn't expecting the money, I wasn't presuming I had it, I wasn't planning on it, and therefore, obviously, I didn't need it, and so I'm going to give the whole amount to God. To see a missionary supported, to see God's work go forward, to see more souls get saved. Or even 50%. But our first thought is, now I can do this and this and this and this. We'll pay $1,000 for the latest phone technology. I know you're going to sit here and argue, oh, you've got to get on this plan over here and get on this plan over here, and they'll give you the phone, yeah, at $50 a month for the next 10 years. I know it's not quite that bad, but I just was looking at phone plans. It's embarrassing what Christians get themselves into. I'm telling you, it's embarrassing get ourselves locked in and somehow convince ourselves because it's only costing $29 a month, it's not costing us anything. Yet to get some Christians to give $29 a month to missions would be absolutely excruciating to them. I'm saying idolatry is a problem. The tragedy of idolatry is that a love for God is hindered. It's no longer pure. It's no longer unadulterated. I've already mentioned it, but secondly, our lives are powerless. In Jeremiah chapter 2 again, picking up in 27, say to a stock, thou art my father. You say to a stone, you've brought me forth. They've turned their back unto me, the Lord is saying to to them, not their faces. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise, save us. But God asks a question, verse 28, but but where are your gods? Wait a minute, your affection has been turned to the stock, it's been turned to the stone. We have raised our children to worship plastic and screens. To spend countless hours consumed with those type of things. And I know in part, and I'm going to say because I struggled with actually preaching this message here today at this time now. But it's a scary reality. You're going to be married in two, three years. Some of you 10 or 15, but who's counting? But you are going to be raising the next generation of Christians and Americans. If we don't change our values and we don't understand that there's priorities that are wrong, skewed, misplaced, we'll raise our children to do the same things that we did. And it does not surprise me, and I know I'm getting a little bit on the political edge of things here, and that's not really my place, it's the pastor's place. But it doesn't surprise me that Basically, we've been told, 
wait until science solves the problem. And I somehow believe that Christians should have been able to get on their faces before God and say, God, please prove that you're God, not science. Stop this virus. Do something dramatic to make the world know it's not science that's our salvation. It's not technology that's our salvation, but it is you are God. And it's like he's screaming at us and saying, go to your gods. Go to your screens. Go to your technology. Let them save you. And it hasn't happened yet, has it? Where is the help? Where is the power with God? Our love for God has become impure. Like adulterers and adulteresses spiritually. We're friends of the world and enemies with God. And as a result, we don't have the power that we should have. Is this the issue in America today? Got to consider that God's telling us to go to our gods. The gods that have occupied our time, captured our attention, engaged our worship, caused us to sacrifice our finances. Go to those gods. See if they can help you. Somewhere, somehow, there's no preacher that's preaching. That's going to cause the American people to come before God and get into the faces before God and say, I'm guilty. I do have other gods before you. And they're not helping me. They're not saving me in the hour of my need. God, I need you. Because our affection has been shifted to other things, our power has been forsaken, or our power has forsaken us. God has watched us time after time turn to the things we love most as we ignore him. Yet when we need a favor, when there's a problem that we can't solve, when we have nowhere else to turn, we look to God for power. But it's gone. Not that God is gone, not that God's power is gone, but that access to that power is gone for us. How come? Because we've turned our face to other gods and in doing so we have turned our backs on God. So in our trouble we come back to God but he invites us to go to the other gods in our life and see if they can rise and save us in the time of our trouble. And because God is so gracious and God is so merciful... He has time and again, and you can look back at American history and you can see time and again where God has moved in some measure and has restored us and has restored some measure of power to us. But it's like, where is it this time? We're still waiting for God to do a miracle. 
But if the miracle doesn't happen, it's not because God doesn't have the power. It's not because God is not willing. It's because God's people aren't in a place where they can access the power of God and see him move and work in unusual ways. In verse 29, God says, why are you pleading with me? Wherewith will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. Don't you remember that part God is saying? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? We saw the verses earlier today. God's hand's not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, but it's our iniquities that have separated between us and our God. Our sins have caused his face to be hidden from us. The third tragedy of idolatry is that our children are destroyed. I've spoken a number of times, as many pastors have, on the unbelievable number of babies that have been sacrificed to the God of convenience and immorality, sensuality. Over 62 million now in the United States of America. It's hard to believe that the people of God would go to Molech and Ashtaroth and offer their children to a God of stone as was happening here in, in, in Judah's day. It's hard to believe that they could literally carry their babies and just throw them to these gods. Thinking somehow it was the right thing to do. It's like, how could anybody ever imagine that that's acceptable? Yet it seems even harder to believe that we, as enlightened 21st century Christians, offer our children to the gods of plastic and pictures and entertainment. Yet we do it day after day after day. And then there's the gods of popularity and position. It's amazing what parents will do to manipulate favor for their children in certain circumstances such as sports teams. And other endeavors. It's amazing how many Christian parents will spend hours working with their children in one area that will make them look good before the eyes of men, but do nothing to work with their children in another area that would make them look good in the eyes of God. Learning scripture, understanding how to lead people to Christ beginning to embrace the spirit-filled truths of the Christian life while they're young. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? I think about crazy things sometimes because I understand it takes a while for children to process this concept that if they're saved, the Spirit of God is in them, but children that are raised in a Christian home get saved at a young age quite typically. And they have that power. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if we had a generation of teenagers that were raised up that actually were spirit-filled and understood how to walk in the power of the Spirit of God? 
We have an unusual Christian school in our ministry, and I understand that. Not something that I'd necessarily recommend for anybody, but I have realized, even in elementary chapel, that I'm going to talk to them about the Holy Spirit. Many of them have never heard of such a thing, and some come from churches that teach it totally skewed and wrong. Talked about it to our high school students, I think, at least three times this semester, including the message that you heard Sunday night. And last Thursday, when I talked to them, I said, young people, you've got to understand, without God's presence and the power and the wisdom and direction of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to know how to navigate in the culture that is coming upon us. Our children are destroyed. Our children are raised in an atmosphere of me first and I deserve to get what I want. Our devotion to, uh, to possessions takes us away from our devotion to God. Things that consume our time, our finances, our imaginations, our talent, our conversations, our creativity. We are so consumed with things that aren't going to matter for eternity that we have nothing left to give to God. We get so wrapped up. I mentioned that 15-year-old that I heard as I was eating lunch on Sunday accomplished something that was pretty amazing that the people on the panel were talking about and bragging about. I didn't even have the mind to wrap my mind around it. I wasn't listening 100%. But I tried to find her latest 15-year-old sensation, whatever. And dozens upon dozens of 15-year-olds and children who are entrepreneurs, making their mark in the world, making hundreds of thousands of dollars in their businesses already was everywhere. Didn't realize there were so many smart kids. But we get caught up in that mentality, and I'm saying, where are the Christians that are going to say, you know what, God has something exceptional, something unusual for me to accomplish. Not all of us are going to accomplish the same thing, but we heard it this morning. God has placed us where we are to do something exceptional with us as we are. And we cannot go through our lives assuming and believing that we aren't anything unusual. That may be the case, but we have an unusual God. And somehow we need to have a generation that understands that God can raise us up and use us to do something that is beyond the norm. I am so encouraged with this college, and I've told you this before, but I think you need to hear it over and over again because you are being taught in an atmosphere where the exceptional is assumed. And by being assumed, I mean we assume that God is going to do great things. But when it comes to your personal life, it's a little bit different matter, isn't it? You can be caught up in the excitement of what God's doing corporately, but you as an individual can be left behind. Thinking you're spiritual just because you're around people that are spiritual. But there's gods that are consuming your life, robbing you of your energy. Our children are destroyed. 
In vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. God's saying, I've disciplined you. I've hit you where it hurts most. But rather than understanding the message of the prophet and that the judgment of God has come upon you and it's affecting your families and it's affecting your heritage, instead of understanding that, you kill the messenger. Isn't that what Stephen said in his final words? Which of the prophets have you not slain? God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, and you kill him too. Stephen didn't say it, but he was implying you're about to do it to me. We get rid of the message instead of responding to the truth. Verse 31, O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, why are Lord, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. Can a maid forget her ornaments, a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. I don't believe that's necessarily of you, true of you individually. But so many days had gone by for God's people. With God pushed out of their lives, they couldn't even count them anymore. The pursuit of self had dominated them. And in the face of judgment, experiencing the consequences of their disobedience, they still didn't get it. I think it'd be right perhaps to just take a short brief time to help you understand what the benefits are of serving false gods. Pay attention carefully as I give them to you. Not a thing. Not a thing. Yet somehow we don't get it. Revivalist Vance Havner wrote once of the disposition of pastors when he would contact them for a time to schedule a revival. In relating their responses, he wrote it like this. It'll be a bad week for revival. We have the county fair Sunday and Monday. High school band concerts Tuesday. Circuses in town on Wednesday. Sons and daughters of I Will Arise have a supper on Thursday, whatever that was. The high school has a dance Friday night. And there's college football Saturday night. On and on it goes, he writes, while defeated church members build up their alibis for why God's not working. Any church that takes back seat and fearfully anticipates every sideshow that blows into town is already beaten. 
We have developed an inferiority complex before the world, the flesh and the devil. Apologetically, we take what is left in attendance after our worldly church members have gone where they really belong. The early churches did not quake every time an ungodly, the ungodly had a spree in Jerusalem. The saints in Rome did not get the blues because attendance would be cut by a gladi gladiatorial contest in the Colosseum. They had a robust, world-shaking power of their own that eventually put the Colosseum out of business. If we recovered that, we would leave our little hot chocolate huddles in church basements and give the world today a demonstration that would make its little affairs look like firecrackers beside God's atom bombs. Things like that stir me. There's only one thing holding back the move of God. It's not the disruptions of the last months. It's not the political results of the elections. The world keeps doing what the world knows how to do best. Live in sin and deception, debauchery. But it doesn't keep us doing from we, what we ought to do best, and that's loving God with all our hearts, our soul and mind. Tragedy of idolatry. Love is misplaced. Power with God is gone and our children are destroyed. But boy, are we having fun, aren't we? How's that working out for you? How's it working out? Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that letting other things take your place is idolatry. It doesn't just grieve you. It causes you to be angry because you said you're a jealous God. And you'll share your glory with none. Help us to acknowledge our struggle in this area. Today I pray in Christ's name. Amen.